This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Ayelet Waldman. Ayelet is the mother of four children and was a federal public defender and adjunct professor at UC Berkeley Law School, where she developed and taught a course on the legal implications of the war on drugs. She is the best-selling author and editor of a number of books, novels, and essay collections, including the book A Really Good Day. How Microdosing Made a Mega Difference in My Mood, My Marriage, and My Life. She's also the author of Love and Treasure and Inside This Place, Not of It, Narratives from Women's Prisons, and has been called America's Most Outrageous Writer for her frank books and essays on motherhood. I have such a great appreciation for Ayelet's tremendous authenticity and bravery to speak from her own experience and also her advocacy that we have the right to take charge of all of the different medicines and tools that are available to help us find balance and health in our lives. Here's my conversation with the very talented and funny Ayelet Waldman. I yell it, your book, A Really Good Day, How Microdosing Made a Mega Difference in My Mood, My Marriage, and My Life, came to the attention of our editorial team here at Sounds True. And someone said, Tammy, you have to talk to I yell it about microdosing. <laughs> you have to. So let's do it. All right. Awesome. Let's talk about microdosing. How did microdosing first come to your attention? So um, I used to work, um, I I was a public defender before I was a novelist and an essayist. And um, when I left the public defender's office, I became a law professor. And I taught all sorts of things, criminal law, constitutional criminal procedure, but I created a seminar at the University of California's law school called The Legal and Social Implications of the War on Drugs, which really was, is, is kind of, it's a very easy, you know, I tell you the title, you know what the class is about. And um, when you, but when you teach a subject like that, people send you books, lots of books. And um, a, a book came across my desk. Um, it was called The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, and I did not open it. Because I am not a psychedelic explorer. I have no interest in, I had no interest in psychedelics. I was not, I didn't, you know, trip like my husband did, for example, or many of my friends. Um, I always sort of felt like the inside of my head was a terrifying place and I didn't really want to have any, you know, heightened insight into it. So um, I didn't look at it and then for some reason that I cannot just explain, 
I decided one day to leaf through it when I was in a particularly dark place in my life uh, in terms of my mood. And I came upon this chapter on microdosing in this in Jim Fadiman's Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. And I immediately sparked to it. I knew a lot about the research that was being done with um, large doses of psychedelic drugs, psilocybin in particular in the United States, LSD and other countries, um, that seemed to show real um, very exciting outcomes when uh, used as a treatment modality for depression and anxiety. But I did not, I'd never heard of this microdosing until I read about it. And then I went online and I watched Jim Fadiman give some interviews on the YouTubes. And there was, he, was desc- he described this experience that one of his, the women he talked to had on microdosing. And she's talking about how she didn't trip, she, nothing psychedelic happened. But at the end of the day, she sort of looked back on her day and she said, huh, that was a really good day. And that just stopped me in my tracks. Because at the time, I had not had a really good day in months. I had been so depressed, suicidally depressed, all but anhedonic. And the idea of having a reliably good day was, I mean, I can't even describe how much I wanted it. So that sent me down this rabbit hole of trying to decide, you know, I'm like a middle-aged mom of four. I'm a lawyer. Do I break the law? Do I try this? Is there a way to get it legally? Short answer, no. Um, And ultimately, I decided to do an illegal 30-day experiment microdosing with LSD. Now, microdosing means, from reading your book, that it's approximately one-tenth of what a typical dose would be. Right. So it's hard to say what a typical dose is, really, because because it's an illegal drug. People take all sorts of different quantities, like your average, you know, 12-time Burning Man visitor is going to take more than, you know, um, middle school student in the city of Berkeley, I would hope. But... um, Actually, I really would hope that the middle school students in the city of Berkeley would just not take any psychedelics at all until they were grown up to handle enough, grown up enough to handle the ramifications. But anyway, uh, so but if you say that like a typical dose is around 100, and it is somewhere between 100 and 200 micrograms, not milligrams, micrograms, a microdose would be about 10 micrograms. Mm-hmm. Okay, and just in setting the stage here, describe Jim Fadiman's 30-day protocol, how it works. So Jim came up with this protocol as a way to, um, because no research was allowed or being done on microdosing, he really wanted to understand whether there were any real effects. And he wanted to give people a kind of structure in which to evaluate the possible benefits um, of the microdosing of psychedelics. So he set up this 30-day system where On day one, you take the microdose early in the morning because it's very activating. And if you take it late in the day, you won't sleep all night. And then on day two, and then you experience the effects of it. On day two, peculiarly, because this does not make sense if you consider the half-life of the drug, but on day two, you continue to experience positive, and in my case, in many people's case, even more positive effects. And then on day three is your kind of reset to normal, like where you are. And for me, day three, I didn't reset to the kind of this, the, the, um, uh, suicidal state that I had been in before that really ended with the first dose, but I would sort of, I, the best way I can describe it is on day three, I would be like, Oh, it's you. 
you know, I feel like that if there's, if a person with a mood disorder, it often feels like you have kind of two states of being existing, maybe even three, the depressed state of being, the manic state of being, or hypomanic state of being, and then you're kind of the you that is you, the normal you, for lack of a better word. And um, uh, I, I felt like I was, on day three, I, the, the depressed state of being would kind of raise its ugly head and I would recognize it right away and be, you know, be sad to see it. And then, but then the net on day four, it all starts again. And then you take your dose and you have those two days and then there's a reset and all that. The reset exists so that you can evaluate the results. And it also exists because there are some people, and again, we don't have good research on this, but there are some people who believe that a tolerance to psychedelic drugs can build up and that um, this is a way to avoid the possibility of tolerance. I, Jim does not really, is not a believer in the whole idea of, of tolerance building in the system. I'm not sure what I believe. Uh, what I believe is we need more research. I would mm-hmm. like to see a lot more research on that specific issue and others. Now, you said something that really got my attention, that the suicidal urges that you felt before you started this 30-day experiment with microdosing went away with your very first yeah. dose. That's big. That's right. big. It's, it's massive. I mean, it really is massive. Now, I want to say one thing really clearly. Because we don't know, because there hasn't been research, what I could have experienced is the mother of all placebo effects, right? I don't care. I still think it's big. Right, but it's still big, right? So I took this drug, and it wasn't like I suddenly became a happy, content, fulfilled human being, but I stopped wanting to kill myself on the day that I took the microdose, and I did not want to kill myself again throughout the period that I was dosing, and and for quite a while after that, I have to say. Okay, quite a while after that. It sounds like it mm-hmm. maybe wasn't an enduring effect. It was, well, it doesn't endure unless you take the, continue to take the drug. And I haven't been comfortable taking the drug because it's illegal. So, and, and I feel like um, as soon as I made the decision to go public, I lost the ability to do this secret illegal experiment. You know, I mean, like, if I'm going to go public with it, I can... And also Donald Trump is president and, you know, Jeff Sessions was attorney general. And like the last thing I need is to be committing a federal crime. It's an irresponsible thing, Tim, you have to do when you have children. Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm like, you know, they're, they're probably federal crimes I'd be happy to commit, you know, like marching and, and trespassing and God only knows what. But sure. right now under these circumstances, I'm too afraid to commit, to commit crimes like this. Right. No, I appreciate that. I think what's, Curious to me is what creates lasting transformation in any human being's life. I mean, that's a lot here, it sounds true, that we focus on. What are the tools? What are the aids? And just to be quite upfront with you, you know, in my own life experience, I've focused a lot on inner technologies of meditation, prayer, that kind of thing. Right. And through doing this interview series now, Insights at the Edge, for more than 500 episodes, I started hearing that we're in a psychedelic renaissance. And I started talking mm-hmm. to people and they're like, Tammy, open your mind. This stuff is <laughs> powerful. It helps. Your job, if your job is really to help people transform, then you need to include 
psychedelics in the toolbox. So I've been attempting more and more to open and see. So in talking to you and asking these questions about what are the transformative effects, I'm moved by the fact that in a way it worked, but it didn't really work, is what you're telling me, unless well, you continued with okay. it. So this is what I'm telling, to you, telling you, that I think when you take large doses of psychedelics, there is research, good, solid research that shows that the effects sustain. That, for example, someone who is profoundly anxious and depressed because they are confronting the end of their lives, they have a fatal disease, that they have transformative spiritual experiences under the influence of large doses of psilocybin or LSD or whatever drug they use that allow them to contemplate death with less fear, to understand and to appreciate their place in the universe, and to experience, for lack of a better phrase, of a really good death. I think that's really clear. I think there's really good evidence that large trip size, like having a psychedelic trip can be transformative in terms of addiction, specifically to cigarettes and alcohol, maybe even to, um, to opioids. We're just discovering that now. Um, I, I think there's evidence about PTSD, about depression. There is no good evidence yet about microdosing. And unlike large doses, in my experience, because I can only speak anecdotally, in my experience, microdosing is, would be something that you have to do like you take an antidepressant. You would have to sustain the practice in order to experience the benefit. Um, in my case, it was a really long time before I found myself in dire straits. And, and, it, and it's... Um, and, you know, I'm going to be completely honest with you, Tammy, in a way that I did not expect to be. Um, it's only very recently that I've experienced a resurgence of those feelings. Hmm. And it's situational um, in large part. Uh, Donald Trump is president. Our country seems to be in a dying democracy. My children are having experiencing various challenges. I've had a professional setback or two. So all of those things are true. And... Um, more importantly, I think for my personal experience, I was put on um, a course of progesterone um, after um, ambiguous uterine, whatever. What I had to take progesterone, which has marked depressant effects. And I have, I have now, because of those various situational things and because of the progesterone, I am once again experiencing the same kind of depression that led me to microdosing. But it's been years, really years. And I'm just having this experience again. And anybody can tell you who deals with mood disorders and depression, to have relative stability for years is remarkable. Hmm. Well, there are two things. One, I just kind of want to give you a hug, to be honest. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like... No, I, I, I know. You know but, when, I, when I agreed to do the podcast, I didn't know that I would be no, that's okay, struggling but, like I am now. That's okay. And, and I really appreciate your authenticity. I mean, I think that's the core of what the term sounds true means to me is how our authenticity leads us where we need to go. So I really appreciate that. It sounds to me that if microdosing were legal, you'd be doing it right now. Oh, my God. There's no doubt. I mean, and this is what's so heartbreaking about this, right? you know, for me, but also for my family, like knowing that there's a way out, but it's a way out that's locked to me. 
is is really hard. It's really emotionally challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's some countries that have been experimenting with legalization of psychedelics. I think, you know, if Oregon actually passes its psilocybin legalization uh, bill, I think we may be, you know, renting a little studio apartment for me in Oregon mm-hmm. every three days. Mm-hmm. Now, tell me more about the 30-day experiment and how it affected you while you were doing it. I mean, you were writing every day as well. How did the writing impact your experience? So it's so interesting. You know, I wasn't in it for the um, productivity enhancement. That's why a lot of, like, specifically, you know, the the people in, in Silicon Valley are interested in this, many of them, because it makes them better, stronger, faster. I think there's also a big spiritual seeking element. But for a lot of people, it's all about like, is this an alternative to Adderall, you know, that's less damaging on the brain and body? Um, is this better than Adderall? Um, and, but I, I didn't care about that at all. You know, I mean, even though I'm an artist, I did not, I don't, I've never had any, um, I've never experienced any, experienced any negative effects from antidepressants or other drugs on my creativity. And I had not experienced really any um, positive effects. Um, although I had once tried my son's Ritalin and found it to be remarkable at achieving a kind of insane focus, followed by blinding headaches and shitty moods. But um, but there, but I, but even though I didn't, I wasn't looking for it. I definitely found it. And you know, there's that creative thing they call flow when you are in this kind of state of creative productivity, when the ideas are coming, when you feel like your whole brain and body moving towards a state of creative bliss, you don't even notice time passing. I mean, I've had the experience of someone saying, I was knocking on your studio door for how you never, I could see you inside, but it was like you weren't hearing the door. Um, And uh, that was much more, that's a miracle when it happens. Normally it happens very rarely under only the most perfect of circumstances, but it happened fairly reliably during that experimental period. And that's incredible. First of all, it makes you happy. It's like a mood enhancement for to have that period of flow is in and of itself and a mood enhancing experience. And, um, and it's, but it also was, it was, a, it was a real true thing. And in many ways, the book is the book that microdosing wrote because, um, psychedelic drugs, we don't, nobody knows how they work really, but they seem to allow different parts of your brain that don't normally communicate to communicate in novel ways and, um, interesting ways. And this book has a lot of different strands. So it has, it's all about the experiment, right? It's about neurochemistry. It's about the effect of psychedelics on the brain. It's about depression. It's about mental illness. It's about my marriage and um, what it's like to be married to a person with a mental illness, what it's like to have a mother with a mental illness. Um, It's about all those things and the history because I taught this class for so long. I also brought in a lot about the history of the war on drugs and our, the American relationship with the drugs, the history of the psychedelic movement, um, mass incarceration and its relationship to the war on drugs. So it's all these strands that if I just said it out, if I had pitched this to my editor, she would have said to me, 
that is not one book. That is not going to work. But it works. I mean, you know, I think I don't want to toot my own horn, but I think it actually works really well. And in in a way, it's sort of a, it is like the proof of the psychedelic experience that under the influence of that very tiny amount, I was able to come up with this creative structure that I don't think I would have been able to come up with before. I think it is a beautiful and brilliant book, the way it all weaves together, and it's a really fun read as well. Now, you said microdosing wrote the book. How does your other writing compare to A Really Good Day, the microdosing written book? You know, the book is very me. It has my sense of humor. It has my, you know, it's all about all these different things I'm interested in. Um, So during the writing of this book, I had this experience of writing about the law for, um, you know, non-lawyers, writing about the war on drugs for people who'd never thought about it before. And that was incredibly exciting because I realized doing that that I want to do more of that. And I've always thought of myself as a novelist, as a television writer, as perhaps an essayist. But I had never really thought about myself as someone who could write for, who could translate this esoteric and complicated subject for other people. And it's given me a whole different line of inquiry in my future work, which is really exciting. So right now, I put aside the novel that I've been working on, and I'm looking for a way to do more of this specific thing. Like, what is this, what is something in the world that, people should understand that they don't and can I, that I can help perhaps eliminate. So mm-hmm. that's been okay, but do you think there exciting. was something about your creative process while microdosing that was enhanced in some way where there was more associative thinking or weaving together yeah. things that might sure. not have seemed associated? I definitely think, I think it, it, was, it was not unlike me, but it was like me at my best, my most creative Right, so it didn't change. It didn't change the range, but it pushed me in the higher range, higher end of the range, more reliably. So, like at my creative best, I am very quick. I make, um, you know, I make associations. I draw analogies. I, I understand things very rapidly. Um, I make unusual connections, and this taking the drug seemed to allow me to sit in that space just more often and more reliably. Like that's at me at my best. Frequently I sit down at my desk and I'm just like, well, this is a nightmare. What is this piece of shit I'm working on? And I don't even understand it. Or, or I had the experience of like not feeling like I can't do something, but can't do it, can't do it, can't do it. And then after the book is published, feeling like I don't know how I did it. And never having a memory of residing in the space of, I can do this and I'm doing it. It's just like, I can't do it. How did I do that? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, all this is, of course, I think, making the listener and certainly making me want to do a microdosing experiment <laughs> because, of course, everybody, I mean, people want to be more creative. I mean, I can understand why Silicon Valley entrepreneurs are, you know, microdosing left, right, and center. Mm-hmm. So I've heard they want to, you and know, com- yeah, micro and mega dosing. I mean, that mm-hmm. makes sense. Do you think it's an effective, you know, as they call it, productivity hack? Yeah, I think it is an effective productivity hack. Does that mean you should spend all your time tripping balls? No. I think that we need to understand the long-term consequences on the brain and body of psychedelic drugs. And, and by the way, 
I'd also, I would argue that we need to understand the long-term consequences on the brain and body of SSRIs. We don't know anywhere near enough about what it does to the human brain to spend decades taking Prozac. Um, you know, the, we get FDA approval for, uh, after a very limited period of experimentation. And we really like, you know, I'm very concerned. I really want to know more about microdosing. What does um, being exposed to a tiny serotonin charge every three days do to the brain? What does it do to the other places where there's serotonin receptors? What does it do to the heart? What does it do to the gut? Maybe nothing, maybe something. So I actually think, you know, I don't, I don't think people should take Adderall because it will make you sit down for eight hours and write your paper. I don't think that's, I, I think that kind I'm, I'm uncomfortable with those kinds of productivity hacks because they tend to come from a place of ignorance. You either haven't thought through or you don't know the long-term consequences of what you're doing. Um, and similarly, I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable saying everybody should microdose because I don't, I don't really, I want more information. Mm-hmm. But for someone who's experiencing, you know, two of my kids have ADHD and have been prescribed ADHD medication, um, Adderall. Adderall is methamphetamine. It's the same drug. It's like, t- there's a tiny metabol. Um, uh, um, that's what I'm looking for. See, I'm over 50. If I were on LSD, I probably would not lose this word. There's a tiny difference in, um, metabolic structure, but it's, it's, they're very, very, they're almost identical drugs. So basically my kids are on meth, right? Adderall, but let's be real. They hate it. They Uh despise the drug. They, neither of them can stand taking it. They um, get depressed every day that they have to take it. And they both take it the bare minimum. So they'll take it for like an important test or a paper when their attention deficits are, just defeating them at all turns. Um, what if we lived in a world where we did real research on microdosing with psychedelics and instead of taking a drug that they despise, that makes them feel crappy, that makes them angry and irritable, that makes them feel not like themselves, they could take a tiny microdose of something that didn't have any of those side effects. It maybe has a little bit of an enhanced irritability, but nothing like that at all. But maybe... Um, but the, that would give them a, that kind of creative space and push that little jolt. I mean, that would be incredible. I'll never do it. I would never give them um, a psychedelic because it's illegal and because I think the risks are so high in this world of committing these kinds of crimes while we still have such a crazy um, um, Puritan approach to drug use. But I would love to see research so that maybe that, you know, Think of how much pain we could save the people who currently are so unhappy and in so much pain because of their Adderall use. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge.
Now, if you could wave your magic wand, I'm giving you one right now, and the next series of research experiments could happen on microdosing, what do you think would be the most helpful research experiments to happen right away? Double blind, double blind, placebo-controlled studies. I want a thousand people, I mean, you know, what's the average study? Like, I get to wave my magic wand, right? So I can yeah. have completely yeah. insane, the study can be like yeah. nobody else's study has yeah. ever been. But I would like to see a thousand people divided into ranges of ailments, say like a hundred depressed people, a hundred anxious people, a hundred people with PTSD, whatever they are, and a thousand similarly situated people a placebo-controlled study where everybody, everything was placebo-controlled, you know, none of it, none of the researchers didn't know, nobody knew, and um, a very carefully constructed uh, system of metrics so that you could really see what kind of benefits were being alleged, and you could also test them. I would like to see, like, let's do some brain study there, too. Let's put people on MRI machines and see what it's like when they're microdosing. I mean, there's so much that I want. Mm-hmm. All of it costs so much money. And you know what? Um, there's zero incentive from the private sector for studying psychedelics. Why? Because they grow on frogs or mushrooms. Or with LSD, they're synthesized. But, you know, you can't patent it because it's already gone through that process. So there's no incentive from a pharmaceutical company to do the research necessary to market the drug. Well, maybe not from a pharmaceutical company, but look what a big business. I live here in the state of Colorado, and, you know, marijuana is a huge business in this state. I mean, there's a lot of entrepreneurial opportunities. Um, yes, true, but that, that doesn't lead to research, right? That leads to kind of what we have with marijuana now, which is fine. I'm all for legalization. I think there's interesting opportunities for research, but, the, you know, the, 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 court, the, the capitalist horse comes before the um, investigative cart. I want to know. Yeah. The capitalist cart is being put before the investigative horse, I think, on um, marijuana. And uh, which is not to say that I, I, I don't support wholeheartedly decriminalization, but um, I, I just, I want research. I want research. I want research. And there's just not as much incentive without, you know, we need, if we lived in a normal world, we wouldn't be relying on multinational corporations to decide what illnesses could be cured by what drug. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's insane. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned that you're the mother of four children. Did they know yes. that you were going through this 30-day microdosing experiment? They knew that I was trying a new drug. And so when you have a parent with a mental illness, uh, that's, very, that's a very familiar experience for you. You, you know, mommy's trying a new medication. is uh, something they've heard many times before. Okay. So, uh, um, they, they, they didn't know that I was doing a psychedelic drug until I decided to write about it. And, um, then I had to tell them. And it actually led to this like lunatic moment in our house where I was like, I never get up in the morning. I'm not a morning person, but I was up early. I was all vibrant and chatty. And I was like, you know, braiding my daughter's hair, being all cute. And she was just like, Oh my God, what is wrong with you? Are you on acid? And I was like, what do you ask? But you've been seeing me so depressed for so long that, like, me in a good mood felt to her like some kind of, you know, body snatcher moment. 
Who uh-huh. was this terrifying, happy creature that had taken over her mother's irritable, grim, and despairing body? And what is your view of talking to children at what age and about psychedelic substances with what kinds of boundaries and parameters and suggestions? So I have a harm reduction approach to all drug, uh, to drugs in terms of my children. I actually have a harm reduction approach to everything when um, it comes to my kids. You know, my, my rat, when they, my kids leave the house, I don't say drive carefully. I say use a condom and test your Molly. Um, <laughs> I believe, cause I believe that I know what I was like as a kid. I now have four children. My youngest is 15. My oldest is in her mid twenties. I know what kids get up to. Um, and I don't want one of my kids to die because that's what we're talking about because I have been afraid that if I give them information, I will encourage behavior. I think that they, um, what you give when you give information are tools to make valid decisions. Not You don't encourage behavior simply by giving people information. But we have negotiated in our house different rules about different drugs because, um, and it's purely what we're comfortable with. So, for example, in our house, I, I think that people should not smoke marijuana until they're out of their adolescence, until they're their um, frontal cortex is fully developed. That is a losing argument. Which is what oh, age? 20s. <laughs> uh-huh. So that's never going to happen, right? Kids in Berkeley start smoking weed in elementary school. Wow. That was not acceptable to me. So we reached a negotiated agreement with our oldest kids that if they kept their grades up, if they remained cheerful, contented members of our family community, if they carried out their obligation, then they could start smoking marijuana at age 15 on the weekends in safe circumstances. Um, I hate that agreement. I think 15 is way too young. I wished it was 18, but they wished it was 11, you know? So we compromised. That's what you do in these circumstances. And a compromise by necessity means that everybody is miserable. Um, but you taught that, you know, you get to the point where you can tolerate. So that's our family. I'm not saying everybody should do that, but that's our family's approach to, um, to marijuana. Uh, We have a zero tolerance approach to alcohol. I think alcohol is devastating and I don't want my kids drinking. So I'll be the first one to say to them, just smoke a goddamn joint. Do not drink that. Don't get hammered. Don't pregame before that party. You want to alter your uh, your consciousness, smoke some weed. Um, again, that may be totally different. We're just like, we're Jews. We don't drink. My, my parents had the same bottle of apricot brandy in their cabinet. And when I was 45, I said, listen, mom, that's been half water since I was 15. You might want to throw that bottle out. So, um, <laughs> so alcohol is a big deal for us. On psychedelics, my message to my children has been, these are really, really powerful drugs. These are drugs that bring you to an experience that can be life-altering or absolutely traumatizing. When you are young, you do not have the tools to assimilate that experience. And you need to wait until you are mature enough to assimilate that experience if it's bad and understand it and survive it 
And also, if it's good, like you need to know what to do with all of those personal insights. And when you're 15, you don't. So um, the other thing I tell them about, specifically about MDMA, which I think is a remarkable drug, I tell them that um, MDMA is astonishing. It's a gift to humanity, but it is a gift that gets less effective with every use. And there's no time like the first time. So if you want to preserve that experience, you need to save that until you're in a committed relationship. And the first time you do Molly is more important from a relationship point of view than the first time you had sex. Save it for someone you love. Save it for that incredible intimate connection. It will transform that relationship. It will Deepen it in a way that you can only imagine. Don't just pop some Molly at a party and dance with a bunch of complete strangers. What a waste. Um, But because I'm not crazy and I know that my children are not going to listen to me, no matter how I wax rhapsodic about the benefits of um, MDMA on, you know, the uh, capacity of human beings for love. I also give them tools. So I tell them what is out there right now that you, they are calling MDMA or Molly is not MDMA. What is out there by, is some combination of synthetic cannabinoids from China, fentanyl, methamphetamine, you know, garbage from the inside of someone's pocket liner. Who knows what's in there? These, and if, he, if they, it can be incredibly dangerous. You know, a bunch of students at Wesleyan University when my daughter was there took what they thought was MDMA. It was a synthetic cannabinoid. They ended up in the ER. One of them had to be intubated. So you have to test your drugs. Don't do it. But if you're going to do it, there's a bunch of testing kits in the bathroom. I'm not, I don't, I don't count them. But if anybody, you, your friends, wants to, t- wants to take one of these drugs, you go, you get a testing kit, and you make sure that what you're taking is what you think you're taking. Now, in talking about MDMA, one of the parts of A Really Good Day that I enjoyed quite a lot was your discussion of how you and your husband have used MDMA as a type of, you called it marital therapy, that it helped you renew. And tell me more about that and if you think it actually could be useful to couples in that way. Oh, this is what it... But this is the first use of it, right? So when Sasha Shulgin synthesized MDMA, it wasn't the first time the drug had been synthesized. It had been a precursor chemical that had been used in industry. But he was probably the first person who bioassayed it, meaning he's the first person who knocked it back. And he did it, this wonderful Berkeley um, chemist, a kind of backyard chemist, but very you know, well-educated. Um, he did it on the Reno fun train from San Francisco to Reno because everybody he knew was drinking and Sasha didn't like to drink and he wanted an alternative to alcohol. And wow, did he get one. But his wife was a fam, a lay couples therapist and they had a very good friend who was a couples therapist and a psychologist. And they immediately realized, as Ann Shulgin has said, um, she, I used to bring Sasha and Anna in to talk to my law students, that she could achieve in a single six-hour MDMA session with a couple what would take years and years of therapy. Because what MD, MDMA acts on memory, and what it does is it dissociates, in my experience, it dissociates memory from the trauma of memory. So like you can, it's, it's effective for PTSD because you can say, experience the traumatic war incident that has led to your PTSD, PTSD, but without the feelings 
the negative feelings, the feelings of terror, anxiety, fear. Um, and instead with this kind of rush of positivity, like, you know, not about the experience per se, but, you know, you have that in your, your, feel, your body is feeling that sense of, of bliss and joy. And it allows you then to unpack those traumatic memories and reassimilate them. And in the sense, in terms of couples, so what it, what it, the, the best way for me to describe it, which isn't very scientific at all, is that it, it leads you back into that first, that first blush of infatuation. When you just are crazy about the person, when everything about, except, you know, like from the, the shape of their foot to the way they drink their soup to the quality of their conversation, it just exhilarates you both body and soul. Um, but with all of the experience and familiarity of your deep knowledge of one another, so you can talk about difficulty from a place of Love and utter lack of defensiveness. You can talk about things that make you happy from a place of openness and lack of fear. And it's just transformative for a relationship. I mean, this house, this is how transformative. We both, when we both, when we did it together for the first time, we both got on the phone with our parents who are in difficult relationships and begged them to do it. (laughs) That's how much we got. Now, we became evangelists for this experience because it was so remarkably positive for our relationship. And again, because I'm interested in not just state changes, but lasting changes, how would you say it's impacted your marriage in an ongoing way? It is one of the, we've been married for 25 years. It is one of the um, important elements of the success of our marriage. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons we've been so happily married for so long. I do not doubt Tell me again, maybe in a different way, of how the MDMA experience led to a deeper understanding or appreciation of each other. Because that's part of what I got from reading your book, was this deep sense of how you and your husband love each other, basically. Yeah, I mean, like, we would spend six hours talking about how and why and with what qualities we loved one another. Like, we would... For us, it was not a sex, not physical. We would talk for hours about the love we felt. What was, you know, we would describe one another's personality to each other in the most loving terms. We would take apart challenges from this place of complete, you know, soul commitment, um, knowing that getting to the hard stuff was only going to make us love each other more. I mean, it sounds, you know, people talk like this and I just want to roll my eyes because they sound like such a bunch of minis. Like, <laughs> oh, so connection. I don't, I don't use that language. I don't, I'm, I'm a, like a hard boiled New Jersey Jew. We don't, you know, we're not big on spiritual experiences. Our spiritual experience is getting out of services as quickly as possible. <laughs> but, um, but I, I think that that experience is, that's the closest I have come to a spiritual experience. And, you know, it's one of the things when I, when I think about like the, um, the MDMA made me, uh, the, um, microdosing made me really rethink my, um, 
relationship with roots to spirituality. It's not like I'm, you know, out there being a spiritual person now, but I've always been very, um, even intolerant of spirituality and dismissive. And I had this insight when I was microdosing that um, a belief in the unknown and the ephemeral might seem to be naive to me, to be misguided to me. But the thing I believe in more than anything in the world is completely ephemeral. And that is the love I feel for my husband. There's no way to quantify that. There's no way to um, get, you can't measure, you can't analyze, you can't dissect love. Why do I love him and not someone else? It's that it is an absolutely spiritual experience to love this person at mm-hmm. this moment mm-hmm. with all your heart. Now, because I'm very invested in the spiritual journey and that experience and appreciation and awe, I would say, in the face of the unknown, mm-hmm. I'm curious to know how your 30-day microdosing opened you to an appreciation of spirituality, maybe different than, you know, running out of the synagogue on Friday night. Yeah, I mean, it, it really did. So, like, I began saying to myself, why do you believe you believe in all, you believe in this one profound thing that is, that, that you cannot touch. Then why are you so adamant that this other thing that seems illogical that you cannot touch, why are you so sure that that doesn't exist? So it's not like I now believe in God or higher power or spiritual path, but I have become, I would say, an agnostic from a place of deep atheism. That's pretty freaking transformative after 30 days of a tiny dose of drugs. I've got to tell you. Mm-hmm. Would you say there were any negative effects during yeah. the 30 days? It made me what? a little more yeah. irritable on day one. But, you know, the um, what I eventually realized was that if I tempered it with a little high C, it's just pure CBD. I don't, I really do not like THC, marijuana, that part of cannabis. So, but if I tempered it with a, tiny, a little bit of CBD, that would smooth out the irritability and I would be fine. But that's, that was the side effect I noticed. Sometimes there might be a tiny bit of stomach upset, um, but that's, those are the only things that I noticed. Mm-hmm. And did you notice any negative side effects when you were using MDMA with your husband as part of your renegotiating your vows, if you will? Once Not exactly that. A, yeah. You can, the, the come down from MDMA can be really intense. And once we had a horrible fight um, after taking MDMA, which is really a bummer because we had had this wonderful experience. Um, and it was just like a pure serotonin thing. So what we started doing is taking, as the MDMA ebbed, we would take a small dose of an SSRI um, as a way to kind of keep ourselves from going into a serotonin trough. And that seemed really effectively to eliminate that post-MDMA blues. Mm-hmm. It feels to me that one of the things you're pointing to that you've been implying in this conversation is if we had a lot more information about all of these different effects, we could really manage our own psychopharmacology so much more intelligently. Exactly. I mean, that's really the most important message of my book and of my life. You know I mean? I believe that human beings are entitled to, as you say, manage their psychopharmacology. I believe that that is, that's a fundamental right to know, to take control of your own brain and your own emotional state. But, um, and I, but I also believe that we as a society 
have shied away from research on all things for, for lots of motivations. I mean, we have a corporate motivation um, because of, of, you know, capitalism that, that makes us do the bare minimum of research to get the drug approved. I mean, that, that shouldn't be our policy. And we've criminalized these various drugs in ways that made them impossible to study. Why is that the answer? You have a suspicion that a drug might be harmful. Why is the answer to ban it and never look at it again? The answer surely must be that what you need to do is to, to study it hard. Mm-hmm. It seems very logical, as you say it. Right. Well, you know, it, it, the... The ultimate irony of this experience has been that I I have found that individuals who are in favor of reforming the psychedelic, the laws about psychedelics and other drugs are far more reasonable and rational than those opposed. Mm -hmm. You'd think the, um, you know, the acid freaks would be the crazy ones, but it turns out that the ones who reject research and study and um, sensible, prudent Courses of action are the ones screaming, no, 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 this is bad. You know, when I asked you the, if you had a magic wand, the type of research you'd like to see with microdosing, I loved your answer. And when I think of MDMA and marital therapy, I think, God, you know, that's one of those areas. And, you know, I've interviewed a lot of authors and therapists who work with couples. And I know how hard it is to get mm-hmm. couples to change and grow and the divorce rate, et cetera. What would be, if you had a magic wand, how we would research MDMA as a tool for marriages? Well, there's great research being done at the University of South Carolina right now, and they're doing specifically PTSD research. But the researchers had an insight that PTSD was in many ways the disease of a relationship, not just the disease of an individual. And they just received permission for the first time to to give MDMA to the non-affected spouse. What's revolutionary about it is, if you think about it, they're giving a drug to the non-affected spouse. So they're studying a disease, PTSD, and a therapy, MDMA, and they're saying, we're not going to give the disease to the person, the um, therapy to the person with the disease, we're going to give it to their partner. It's incredible that uh, permission was granted. And it's And the results are, I think, going to be really exciting. Um, and I would like to see more of that. I mean, I think PTSD couples experiencing where one person is experiencing PTSD is a great place to start. You take couples in the most horrible kind of extremists and you see whether a one or two guided MDMA sessions with a therapist with follow-up and preparation can have a more dramatic result in terms of both the symptoms of PTSD and the quality of the relationship going forward. And I'd like to see a lot more of that. And then we can expand beyond couples and extremists to just like the normal day-to-day tribulations of marriage. Marriage is hard, man. This really hard thing we've, you know, decided to do mostly monogamous for most of us, um, decades upon decades of living together. All right. I want to circle back to something that's a little tender. And I'm going to say a little bit about myself in this, which is you were talking about progesterone and how one of the known Mm -hmm. impacts of progesterone is depression. And without even knowing that and what kind of emotional state or mood I might find you in today, just in reading your book, A Really Good Day, one of the things that you wrote about had to do with your 
experience with different hormonal imbalances in right. your life and the role of hormones in your state right. of I being. wouldn't even call them hormonal imbalances. I would say that my experience of the typical standard hormone fluctuations that are of a healthy woman's body, I, like many other people, experience have a side effect of those healthy fluctuations, which is um, dramatic mood cycling. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. One of the things that occurred to me is how many people will go to a therapist or go and work with a spiritual teacher, and they'll be presenting some issue in their life that they're struggling with when they're not looking at all at their psychopharmacology. They're not looking at their blood chemistry. They're not looking at how that might be a factor and how they're psychologizing or spiritualizing something really that's happening at a much more biological level that's being uninvestigated. So that's what I'm curious to know what your thoughts are about that. Um, I think that's just an incredibly important concept, idea, insight. And I, I think it, it can be, you know, expanded too. like, I think so often, what is it about the human brain that we, is it because we look for an easy answer that we so often focus on one thing when there are other elements swimming around that could be, you know, as, as or even more important, could be having as or as much of an impact. I mean, I think the biggest insight I had into my own mood disorder was when I, when I, I realized that I, what I was was reactive. I was reactive to drugs. I was reactive to um, uh, my hormones. I was reactive to my situation. And what made me atypical was the, the um, labile nature of those reactions that I would, that they were more intense than other people. And that's what my mood disorder really was. It wasn't so much a mood disorder. It, it was a kind of hyper-reactivity to both positive and negative stimulus. And whether that stimulus is hormonal whether it had to do with the sun, whether it had to do with um, a situation that, you know, an exogenous situation in my family and my relationship, that I was always going to be more reactive than other people. And that what I needed to do when thinking about medication was think about a medication that could somehow manage that reactivity. And, um, you know, nobody, no doctor ever said that to me. Every doctor said to me, oh, this is your problem, and pointed to one thing. So your problem is that you have a genetic predisposition to bipolar disorder, and that is, that's a serotonin problem. Or your problem is hormonal, and that's a hormone. You know, like everybody tries to pocket it, whereas to come up with a kind of overarching concept that um, that that encompasses all of those different elements seems to be beyond the. Um, I don't know if it's not beyond the capacity, but maybe it's beyond the um, expectation of most uh, physicians to whom you go for therapists and clinicians. You know, it's like it's like a massive exaggeration of the old um, saying to a hammer, everything is a nail. Yeah. But what yeah. we really need are like, you know, people to stand away from and and or to develop in ourselves, actually, even more important than having others, therapists or whatever, but to develop in ourselves the capacity to look at all these symptoms and try to understand, 
not search for one underlying element, but rather understand a kind of what is the systemic thing that's happening and how, well, how, what is the best systemic comprehensive way to deal with it. Mm-hmm. In terms of this tendency to be reactive, I thought it was interesting that in the afterword of the book, you're writing about, in retrospect, what you think the net result of your 30-day microdosing experiment might right. be. And you say that right. it allowed there to be a little space in your mind to consider how to act in accordance with your values and not just react to external stimuli. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. That's what came from her 30-day microdosing. I think a lot of people would say that that's what comes from a a meditation practice or a mindfulness practice. I know. I mean, I was about, like, and that's what, I don't know what it is that keeps me from developing a mindfulness practice. I know how good it would be for me. I know that this is one of the clearest things that people experience as a result of having a, you know, real um, regular meditation practice. But for whatever reason, and I won't say, I just won't say that I haven't yet been able to compel myself to do that with regularity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wish I could. I wish I did. Maybe it'll happen starting tomorrow or today. I don't know. Do you have any secret, like, tips? I would be really open to hearing them. I would say my secret tip is whatever you're experiencing that you don't like, use that as your object of meditation. Go right into it. Oh, my God. So let myself think, ruminate on the shitty thing. Feel it. Feel it. Go right into it at a feeling level. See, that's like the opposite of what I thought I had to do with meditation. Dude, I'm going to, like, close my eyes and talk about crap in a second or think about it. In fact, we should just end this conversation. So oh, we're going to. We're going to. Your next book, <laughs> I yell it, might be, you know, how a really bad day brought me to new insights right. about... Exactly. There you go. You Perfect. know, my mood, marriage, and life. Hey, you know, I, to be honest with you, I really enjoyed speaking with you, and I think you've helped. We really helped, I wish I you think, closer. You seem like you could be a friend, although oh, I bet cool. that's what everybody tells you. No, it's not true. But I think you're really, you're really advocating for something in the world that mm-hmm. I think is important when it comes to the kind of Thank research you. we can do and the, the way that we can take back charge of our own access to the tools and medicine that will help us as human beings. So thank you so much. Thank you. It was a real pleasure talking to you, too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I've been speaking with Ayelet Waldman. She's the author of the book A Really Good Day, How Microdosing Made a Mega Difference in My Mood, My Marriage, and My Life. Thank you so much for being with us. SoundsTrue.com waking up the world.